Bienvenidos, and welcome to episode 10 of City Break Seville, Art in Seville. I'm going to use the episode to look at some of the lovely treasures you can find all over the city, look at some of the places where you could go to find them, so an art gallery, but not just an art gallery, in fact, a couple of other places too, which are slightly more unexpected, to cover a quick biography of some of the Spanish painters most closely connected with Seville, people like Murillo, Zorbaran and Velasquez. So, the plan for the episode then. I'm going to start at the two rather unexpected places where you can see wonderful paintings, they being the Hospital de la Calidad and the Hospital de los Venerables. Then we'll have some biographies of the three painters and a visit, of course, before the end of the episode, to the main art gallery in Seville, the Museo de Bellas Artes. It's a rather lovely name, isn't it? The Museum of Beautiful Art. I think it translates into English as fine art, really, but somehow beautiful art sounds so much lovelier. OK, then. So, first of all, somewhere where a lot of tourists go, I think a lot of guidebooks point you towards, and that is the Hospital de la Caridad, translated into English as Charity Hospital. It is a very unlikely place to find some amazing paintings, but when you get there, you'll discover that it's home to no fewer than seven large Murillo paintings and a no small number of other goodies. But before we get to those, the building itself is interesting and it has quite an interesting backstory. When you go to visit, once you've got past the main entrance and the bit where you have to pay, etc., through an archway and straight away you're into one of those lovely civilian courtyards. White facade all around you, lovely ochre-coloured decorations on it, very Spanish-looking some big blue and white tiled decorations on the walls, beautiful fountains, some roses, which are said to have been planted by Miguel de Manara, the man who oversaw the building of the place, finishing in 1674. I don't know whether that's true, but it's certainly what they will tell you. So altogether, a very lovely place to be. It looks like a big fancy house, perhaps, but in fact it isn't. One end has a doorway through to a church, which is what the building was in the first place, and the bit that you're looking at was added on later to be a charity hospital, a refuge for the elderly. While you're still standing in the courtyard, if you look at the fountains, you may notice, or you may read in your guidebook, that these two rather lovely pieces of work, which in fact aren't Spanish but were commissioned from Italy, are statues of charity and mercy, and that gives you a clue to the raison d'etre for the whole building. The man most associated with its creation is one Miguel de Manara. Actually, he's got a longer and lovelier, much more Spanish name than that, which is, take a deep breath, Don Miguel Manara y Vicentelo de Leca, or something like that. Apologies to anyone who knows that's not totally properly pronounced. Anyway, he it was who drove the building project forward and had this lovely place made. At the time, he was very well known in the city of Seville, and most people, I think, would have been very surprised to find that he had thrown himself into this charity project with quite such gusto. He was known rather less for his piety, or his love of good works, and much more for the fact that he was a man who very much knew how to enjoy life. A bit of revelry here, possibly even a bit of debauchery there. He was quite honest about this in later life, and talked about the fact that he had led an early life in which, quote, the world and its delights were of more interest to me than any spiritual preoccupations. He was a government minister, he earned a good salary, 
He knew how to enjoy the money that he had. Such, in fact, was his enjoyment of all the things on offer that people said later that maybe he'd been the inspiration for Don Juan in the Byron poem, somebody who really threw himself into revelry. One of his friends summed it up quite nicely with the following words, quote, There was no folly which he did not commit, no youthful indulgence into which he did not plunge, until what occurred to him in the street of the coffin. And that's it exactly. He went along as cheerfully as anyone in just enjoying things until he got a terrible shock. Actually, poor man, he got two terrible shocks. The first one, when he was only in his thirties, was the death of his wife, who I think was younger still. And then shortly after that, probably in a state of desperation and very preoccupied with loss of life, he had what he described as a vision in which he said he saw, in inverted commas, a funeral procession. And when he went over to inspect it more closely, he realised that the corpse that they were carrying along the road was in fact himself. This had a profound effect on him. He seemed to immediately repent of all the things that he felt that he'd done that were wrong. He became very religious, turned to God. He joined the Brotherhood of Charity, the Spanish name for which is La Santa Caridad. So you can hear that that Caridad is where the name of the building comes from. They were a religious organisation who saw it as their mission to look after the homeless. They cared for the destitute, particularly if they were elderly or sick. They arranged to bury those people whom no one else would bury, be they paupers, criminals, people who'd been executed, unfortunates who'd drowned in the river. If a body was found in the river and nobody knew who it was, then they would take it to the Brotherhood of Charity, knowing that they at least would bury the person. And he joined this community. I think probably when he arrived, they must have been wondering how he was going to get on. But in fact, he absolutely threw himself into it and did all the tasks that were asked of him and really did seem to be a changed man, to the point, in fact, at which, a few years later, he was elected to be the Hermano Mayor, which I think translates as senior brother, so running the order, in fact. And during his tenure, the church building was completed, and under his leadership, it was decided, too, that they wouldn't stop there, they would add another building on, the hospital, actually build a refuge for the people that they'd been caring for so they could give them a more permanent home. And he devoted the rest of his life to this project, as well as to practising his faith and encouraging others to do the same. He did some writing. He published something called Discorso de la Verdad, which means something like Discourse on Truth, in which he tried to explain the basis of his faith and why it was he acted as he did. When he first joined the Brotherhood, he had been living in a very fancy fine house in a different part of the city. He moved to a much smaller, simpler one near the hospital. And in fact, as he became elderly, he left that too and moved into the hospital itself, where he died in May 1679. Fittingly, he's buried there. You may not notice at first, but if you cross the courtyard and go through the room into the church, just as you enter it, there's a marble slab on the floor with an inscription on it telling you that that was where he wished to be buried and explaining why that was the spot he chose. He wanted to be somewhere, he said, where everybody who came to the church would walk over him, because that would be a fitting remembrance of what he saw as his stature, somebody who was less than anybody else. If you cross the road from the hospital, you'll find a garden on the other side, with a bronze statue of Don Miguel in it. It's a full-length figure, said to be quite a good likeness, and it shows him holding his arm out, offering help 
to another figure, a destitute young man who's coming up to approach him. So his legacy is obviously the hospital itself, which still runs as a home for elderly men. When you cross the courtyard, you may well meet one or two of them. If you go and find unexpectedly that the home is shut, that may well be because it shuts down every time any one of the residents dies. It closes for the day so they can give proper attention to the funeral. So I guess it's still being run on the lines that he would have liked. But the real legacy, I suppose, is the artwork which he commissioned for the inside of the church. He was working in Seville's Golden Age, and he was able to commission no fewer than 11 paintings from Murillo. Worth saying, actually, that today four of them are not the originals, because they were looted by Napoleon's troops in 1810 and replaced by copies in 2008. But the other seven are the originals, and they're very much on religious themes. They're all very large paintings, up both sides of the wall, between the door of the church and the altar. There are saints, so there's one of St John of God carrying a sick man, that's its title. It's thought, in fact, that Don Miguel himself posed for this painting, and that the face of the St John figure is his. There's also a painting of St Elizabeth of Hungary, healing the sick. The translation I read claimed they were sick with scurf, but I think perhaps it meant scurvy. So he commissioned paintings of people doing what he himself was trying to do, helping other people, healing the sick, just as the Brothers of Charity were trying to do in their own generation. In addition to those, though, he commissioned quite a lot of biblical scenes. So there's Old Testament ones, for example, Moses striking the rock to make water come out of it. Then there's one entitled The Annunciation, so Mary receiving the news that she's going to be the mother of God's son. Two lovely oval portraits of children. One is the infant Jesus, the other one the infant John the Baptist. And a huge canvas entitled The Miracle of the Loaves and the Fishes. These are not the only large and very striking paintings in the church, because there are two more over the entrance opposite each other by a painter called Juan de Valdes Leal. They've both got Latin titles. One's called Finis Gloriae Mundi, so the end of the glories of the earth, which is a rather horrible painting when you come to look at it. It shows a bishop who's died. It shows you his decomposing body being eaten by worms. And in the background, there's a pair of scales. I think they're meant to be the scales of justice. And they're labelled ni mas ni menos, which means no more, no less. So it's showing you after death, somebody's having his life weighed up being decided exactly what what this man had done was worth. It's said that Murillo didn't like this painting at all. He thought it was macabre. I don't think he's wrong about that, actually. And he apparently said, quote, you have to hold your nose to look at it. Opposite it, on the other wall of the church, there's a second painting with a Latin title called In Ictu Oculi, which means in the blink of an eye in Latin. Another very macabre number. It shows a skeleton pointing to the message in Latin, and on the floor, all around him, are what look like the scattered possessions of a very wealthy person. So there are books, there's a globe, there are fine cloths, quantities of gold, which presumably the poor man, I'm guessing it was a man in those days, had lost in the blink of an eye because death had suddenly arrived and taken him. So again, you can see that that's a theme that will have been very dear to Don Miguel's own experience. Death had rushed upon him very quickly in, in taking his wife away. But art historians also point out the fact that this was painted just a year or two after the plague of 1649, which had killed nearly half the population of Seville. 
so death would have been a theme on everybody's mind. Those are by no means the only things to look out for inside the church, but I do think it would be dull to just list thing after thing, so I'll leave you to find for yourself the other things that you like the look of. Let's move on then to the other institution with a rather unlikely name that turns out to be an art gallery, and that one's called the Hospital de los Venerables, as in Venerable. And this was a building built in 1675 as a home for retired clergy. So quite similar really, except it was for clergy rather than vagrants, but a home for elderly men. But this one is no longer used for its original purpose, because it is an art gallery. It's built around a sunken patio. It's got a gallery on the ground floor, another one up above, and a cellar. Highlights will be things like another painting by Juan de Valdez Leal, who did the deathly ones in the Caridad building. This one's a bit more mainstream. It's called The Triumph of the Cross. There's also a painting by his son, Juan Lucas Valdez, which is called The Apotheosis of St. Ferdinand. That's a frieze with wording underneath it in Greek, which says, Fear God and honour the priest. Time perhaps to pause and mention again three of the main artists and just give you a little bit of biographical detail on each of them. So let's start with Juan Bartolomeo Esteban Murillo, Bartholomew Stephen Murillo, I suppose that would be in English, who grew up in Seville. He was orphaned at the age of 10, but he showed an early aptitude for painting and drawing and it wasn't long before he was in the workshop with an artist known as Juan de Castillo. When he was a bit older, he went off to Madrid for a few years to study with the painter Velázquez, who was a generation older than him. But he returned to Seville. I think he always thought of that as the city where he wanted to be. He was known very much for his religious paintings. We've just seen a few of those at the Caridad, for example. You may remember there's at least one of his paintings in Seville Cathedral as well. But he had a second string to his bow, and he was known as what I've seen described in various books as a, quote, painter of urchins. What people mean by that is the fact that he very much liked to paint scenes from the poorer parts of Seville where he felt at home, places where he'd grown up. It's even thought that he used his own sons as models for some of the pictures. He said that what he was trying to do was portray Seville street life as he'd known it to be, and at the same time to encourage what he called Christian charity. So show it as it was and encourage people to help and do something about it. In her book Seville, Cordoba and Granada, Elizabeth Nash writes about his paintings. She mentions that the urchins had, as she puts it, dirty fingernails and wore rags, but as she says, they, quote, are not scenes of wretchedness. The children are unwashed and hungry, but they have bright eyes and a ready smile. There are people who thought that this treatment that he did was really rather sentimental and it would have been better to portray things as they really, really were. It does have to be said that they were very popular paintings, often bought by foreign buyers. He had one particular client from Belgium who seemed to be quite often in Seville and quite often bought some of his paintings, probably took them home and sold them on. And that's the reason why today you don't find that many of these paintings in Spain. You find a lot more of them in British art galleries, German galleries, in Northern Europe generally. It's rather sad to relate that Murillo died after an accident which happened while he was working. He'd gone to Cadiz, he'd been commissioned to paint an altarpiece in a church there. Scaffolding had been put up and he was working away on it when he fell off and injured himself so badly that although he was carried home to Seville, he never really recovered. Then there's Francisco de Zorbaran, 
who was born slightly earlier than Murillo in 1598. He came from elsewhere. He was actually originally from Extremadura, but he came to Seville and that's where he really made a name for himself. He had a large workshop there and got many commissions for religious works, often actually not one painting but a whole series. He painted, for example, a series of 21 paintings for one of the Dominican convents in Seville, Don Pablo it's called, and did series two for other churches, St Thomas Aquinas, the Capuchin convent, and all of these, of course, had religious themes. His speciality seemed to be very expressive single religious figures, often illuminated but emerging from a very dark background which would give them maximum impact. The Art Museum in Seville's own guidebook writes about his, quote, solemn monumentality and the, quote, immediate presence of the figures that he painted. They have there, for example, one called Crucified Christ, which has a pale figure dressed only in a white loincloth of Jesus on the cross, very near to death, possibly actually dead. The nails in his feet are very visible. And the background is dark, so all you can see when you look at this painting is the figure. You're forced to concentrate on only that. Possibly one of his best-known paintings, which is also in the Seville Museum, is called The Virgin of the Caves, a slightly odd title. But the reason I picked that one out to talk about is because that is very much a painting with a Seville theme. The Spanish title is Santa Maria de las Cuevas, and it's a depiction of a legend that hails actually from Seville, in fact from Triana. It's said that one day in the 12th or 13th century, not quite sure exactly when, some potters from Triana were out on the riverbank collecting clay. They were digging big holes to see what they could find. These were known as the caves. And while they were working, they had a vision of the Virgin Mary. They were all convinced that that's what had happened. They rushed home and told other people about it. And a Franciscan hermitage was built exactly on the spot where she said to have appeared. So this legend is retold in the painting, which shows Mary holding her hands out protectively and wearing a blue cloak over her dress and there's an angel at each side of her holding up the cloak so that it forms a canopy and underneath it is a group of white-robed friars who are kneeling and looking up at her in adoration. This picture was painted for the monastery over in Triana, the Carthusian monastery, and was in fact displayed there for, I think, several centuries before it was moved to the Seville Art Museum. It's much lighter in colour than a lot of his other paintings, much more luminous, very beautiful. He actually painted three paintings for that monastery, and one of the others is called San Hugo el Refectorio, which is a painting of the refectory in the monastery, showing the day when the Carthusian monks first decided that they were going to eat no more meat. So there's a piece of meat being offered, but they're all at their great long table, saying no to it and just eating bread and much simpler things. And then thirdly, there's Velázquez, whose dates overlap pretty much with Zurbarán's. He was born one year later in 1599 and he died in 1660, just I think three or four years before Zurbarán. So they were working at the same time. He's another one with a wonderful name. Let's see if I can pronounce that. Okay, so really he was called Diego Rodríguez de Silva y Velázquez. And he's known perhaps most of all for his still life paintings, often with one figure in them said to be very realistic. But he too did religious paintings. He was also quite well known for portraits. There's one in the Bellas Artist Gallery, for example, of one Don Cristobal Suárez de Ribera, a very well-known civilian name. 
Although he didn't spend his entire working life in Seville, his dream was always to work at the court, and eventually he was in fact invited to go and paint a portrait of Felipe IV, which he went and did straight away, and used it as an excuse to move to Madrid, and as far as I know, didn't come back. One of his best-known paintings, which isn't on show here, but you may know, it's called Las Marinas, and the reason it's well-known is because it's very much ahead of its time. It's an illusion picture, really. The painting shows Velasquez himself, but he's shown from the back, and he's looking at a mirror, so we're looking at his back, and then the mirror that he's looking at, and in that mirror is a reflection of the King and Queen of Spain. I suppose it was a clever way of painting himself and them without actually implying that he'd been invited to tea or anything. But it made it a very intriguing painting and nothing like that had ever been done before. And we know how intriguing it was from the fact that 300 years later, one Pablo Picasso became really quite obsessed with this picture and made no fewer than 58 abstract attempts to recreate it. So I'd like to finish by just talking you a little bit through the main art gallery in Seville, which, as I mentioned before, is called the Museo de Bellas Artes. Its own guidebook says that it sees its role, at least one of its roles, as being, quote, an essential element in the cultural identity of Seville. And it's true to say it is one of those very lovely regional galleries which gives you a really good idea of the city in which it sits, both the places there and also the painters who worked there. In the 1820s, there was a very difficult period for churches and monasteries. Many monasteries were suppressed, monks fled, and the artistic treasures that they'd been building up were, I suppose you'd have to say, up for grabs. And guess what? People took them. And a few years after that, 1835, there's a royal decree coming out saying, let's establish a Museo de Pintoras, so a museum of paintings. So basically, they decanted the art treasures from the monasteries into this gallery. I think it was a homeless collection for a year or two, and then the idea was had that, well, as well as paintings being up for grabs, perhaps the convents were too. And so they took over one of the former convents, this one was called La Merced, which I think means mercy, and remodelled it a little bit and created an art gallery out of it. The original church is still part of the building. It's actually one of the rooms in which paintings are displayed now. If you go in there, it's a good idea to look up as well, because it's got the most beautiful domed ceiling. A lot of the rest of the original monastery has been worked around, so it's based around three patios, which are all original, and a staircase, also from the original building. And a few years after that, it was renamed the Museo de Bellas Artes, so Museum of Fine Art, as opposed to just Museum of Paintings. It's said that originally, when it opened, it had over 2,000 pieces of art, but it was noted in 1883, so 50 years or so later, that they were down to just 300. And this is deemed to be because many of the pieces have been stolen. It's thought, in fact, actually, in some cases, by some of the museum's directors. So, presumably, they were making a bit of money on the side by taking things and selling them on. Things took a better turn in the early 20th century. Something was going to be done about this at last. And an association was formed with the following name. Asociación de Emigas del Museo de Bellas Artes de Sevilla. So, Friend Society of the Fine Art Museum in Seville. Sounds much lovelier in Spanish somehow, doesn't it? Anyway, from that point onwards, they made real efforts to build up the collection again to the point that it's reached today. So today there are, I think, 14 different display rooms to go through. It's all pretty much in chronological order, starting with medieval Spanish art, 
going through then Baroque and the Romantics and Realism right through to the 20th century and with an emphasis throughout on Spanish art and in particular civilian works. So I'm just going to mention a very few. Firstly, an artist that I'd never heard of, one Alejo Fernandez, who's in one of the early rooms. He was actually German, but he came to Seville, married a Spanish lady and probably rather unusually for those times, took her surname. I think perhaps he wanted to blend in better. Anyway, he is credited to have brought Renaissance style to Seville painting. Then there are paintings by all the main artists we've already mentioned. There's Christ Crucified by Zorbaran. There's another one of his called The Apotheosis of St. Thomas. There are Murillo paintings, The Virgin of the Immaculate Conception, for example, and Virgin with Child, and the rather strangely named Virgen de la Servietta, which literally does mean Virgin of the Serviette, or Virgin of the Napkin, the reason being that it was actually, apparently, painted on a napkin. Who knew? Also by him, there's another painting of Santa Justa e Santa Rufina. There's a painting of them in the cathedral, if you remember, but there's another one here of the two saints who are the patron saints of Seville. There's also at least one Goya painting. I don't think he had much connection with Seville, but his portrait of Canon José Duazo Ilastre is here. So there are examples of paintings by all the main artists that you probably will have heard of, but I particularly enjoyed the 19th and 20th century room that's you, where I didn't know any of the painters, but where there were quite a lot of works that were very civilian in flavour. So, for example, there was the work of somebody called José García Ramos, who liked to draw everyday scenes from Seville. So he got to flamenco and bullfighting and just street scenes. And there's a very nice one called Bulerias, which is just a little group of three people around a wine barrel somewhere in a street in Seville. And it just captures a moment and you think, they're enjoying themselves. I remember another painting of Triana, done by one Emilio Sanchez Perrier. Triana in 1888, so long before it became in any way modernised or sanitised. So that's quite interesting to see. It's just a collection of little tumble-down buildings on the river bank. I saw another very nice painting entitled View of the Cathedral of Seville from the Guadalquivir by a civilian painter called Nicolás Jiménez Alpeliz. And the painting I liked most, I think this one might be quite well known, but I hadn't seen it before. And it's huge and displayed at one end of a gallery, so you see it as you're approaching and are very aware of it. And that's a painting called Las Cicareras, painted by one Gonzalo Bilbao, dating from 1915. And it's a picture of the cigarette factory workers from Seville's tobacco factory, so the place where the fictional Carmen worked, if you like. And it shows a crowded work floor, lots and lots of workers at various tasks, all in the background, up both sides and behind. And then in the front, there's a focus on one of the female workers who's just taken a moment from whatever she's supposed to be doing to feed her baby. And they're lit up in the middle of the picture at the front. And there are one or two of her closer colleagues standing around admiring the baby. It has been criticised as being a little bit romanticised. It's thought the conditions in the factory were nowhere near as good as what's depicted here. But it's a lovely painting to look at. It's got, you can see an impressionist influence in the light and the shade and the colours. And it has to be said that the people in it actually liked it very much. We know this because the painter took it one day to Madrid to 
enter it in a national exhibition and it was away for a few weeks and when it came home, the cigaleras, or a good group of them anyway, the tobacco workers, went in a procession. They hired some horse-drawn carriages to take them to the station to meet their painting and welcome it home. So I think they must have been fond of it. There were one or two other very civilian scenes to mention. So a painting, for example, called Feast Day in Seville, which shows three rather well-dressed young ladies just out for the evening. There's a lot going on in the background, people eating and drinking and so on, but they're sort of lit up in the middle of the painting. I like to think that they're perhaps at the Feria. And there are other family groups and just paintings that look very much centred on this region. Altogether then, a gallery I very much enjoyed visiting. Classy, smallish, not actually tiny, it's got 14 rooms, but I would say definitely an emphasis on quality rather than quantity. And this may well have been planned right from the outset, because I found a quote about the 1850s about an organisation called the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de Santa Isabel de Hungria, which I think was some kind of association connected to the museum. And they came in and did a bit of a cull of the goods that they had there, and they decided to keep 435 paintings and 15 sculptures, but there were 357 more paintings which they got rid of, and they did not mince their words when explaining why. They had to go, they said, because they were, quote, rubbish, not proper for a museum, because of their lack of any artistic merit. I hope it wasn't just that people were taking things away and selling them for their own benefit. What a cynical view. Anyway, on the way out, the last thing to do perhaps is just notice that in the grounds of the museum there is a statue of one Bartolomeo Esteban Murillo, implying, I think, that for the museum owners he is the top hit. OK then, so much for art in Seville. Next week we're going to go on to a completely different topic, namely gastronomia. I'm going to try and delve into the mystery of tapas and the mystery of however many dozens, possibly more than that even, varieties of sherry there are, and talk a little bit about Andalusian specialities, have a look at some reviews by travel writers who have, or in some cases haven't, enjoyed eating and drinking in Seville and environs. So I hope that will be of interest. But for the moment, I would just like to thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias. To hope that you will be able to join me la próxima vez, I believe that means the next time, and to wish you goodbye. Adios. <laughs>